Welcome to Black Earth Podcast. I'm your host, Marion Atieno Osieyo. Black Earth is an interview podcast that's celebrating nature and the inspiring Black women leaders in the environmental movement. In this season, we are reimagining the environmental movement as a place of joy, of belonging, of effective action, and of deep relationship with Earth and ourselves. In this episode, I am joined by Poppy Okocha. Poppy is a visionary and incredible ecological home grower who is inspiring the world to reconnect their relationship with the land and the living world. In this conversation, we explore liberation through the practices of growing nature, growing food, and growing ourselves. So hi, Poppy. Could you please introduce yourself to our listener community? Hello. Um, <laughs> so my name is Poppy Okocha. Um, I am an ecological food grower, both on a home scale and in a community garden project. Um, as so often, like kind of goes hand in hand, I'm also a keen forager and home cook. Um, I write and speak about what I do and share a lot of it on social media as well. Wow. Thank you so much. And where are you currently based, Poppy? I'm based in South Devon in England. Yeah, cool. Coolio. Um, so Poppy, how would you describe your relationship with nature? Yeah, this is such an interesting question because um, it's, we, I feel like in English, we don't quite have like the accurate language for, for these things um, because to have a relationship with nature it's like a funny thing because like ultimately like I am nature so it's like it's almost like a question of like what's your relationship like with yourself and like I don't know it's a strange thing because at the same time along with that there is also like obviously an understanding in me that there's a world outside of me that I can have a relationship with too but it's a funny one it's like complex and I still don't quite understand how to like hold that complexity out like considering I don't necessarily have the words for it so in a nutshell my relationship with nature is evolving (laughs) Um, I'm learning all the time um, and I think that my relationship with nature is partly an evolution of a relationship like with myself but it's also partly like a kind of growing relationship with the world outside of me so yeah thank you so much for sharing that and um I really hear you on um, the English language and the ways in which it can hold or it speaks about our, you know, the way we conceptualize like reality and everything else around us. And um, it was really an really interesting article I read uh, last year. Um, and the, the author was speaking about how, you know, what would it mean if the the English, if the environmental movement wasn't in English and it recognized or, you know, we expressed ourselves through the thousands of other languages that exist, how would nature be conceptualized in those languages? And what would it tell us about um, the being of nature and how we relate to it um, in, in other languages? Um, so it is a very complex and nuanced question, but mm. it can be it can be anything that um, 
it means to you and the relationship that you hold uh, with mm. nature and, you know, the understanding that uh, you are nature um, and there's no mm. separateness in that, but it's, mm. it's continuously evolving. And mm. so, yeah, so thank you for sharing that. No, I, I definitely, I mean, I suppose one element that is particularly evolving at the minute is me trying to get a firmer grasp on, so I'm mixed heritage, um, Nigerian from the Igbo tribe and white British. And I have like, um, you know, some grasp on some of the traditions and rituals and things and cosmology of like the pre-Christian people in the Northern Hemisphere. But I'm only just starting to get a stronger grasp on that from my Igbo side. And some of that is learning more about the goddess of the land or Mother Earth in a way um, called Annie or Anna. And there's one particular saying that goes, Annie, and I'm not going to say this well because I have pretty much no Igbo, <laughs> but it goes, Annie Nwa Madu, something like that. And it basically means the people belong to the earth or to this earth deity. And to me, that really speaks to like, I suppose, where my relationship with nature is at the moment. Like for me, nature feels very much like alive in the way that like a person is. And it feels very much like something I belong to. And I don't know if it is the right word, but this entity. <laughs> and is is that in any way kind of informed by um, how you live now in terms of being a grower and a forager? Or has that been something that has been with you throughout? Yeah, it has been. I mean, it's funny, they've kind of evolved hand in hand because I started leaning into wanting to learn about growing and engage with growing because I was having like a sort of evolving understanding of my relationship to the earth. Um, and, I, and, and I actually wanted to get a deeper understanding or experience of that relationship. So I had like a, an inkling of what, what I was trying to follow, like a feeling I was trying to follow or an experience I was trying to follow. And learning more about growing food was almost like a tool to like get further along on that journey, if you know what I mean. So I suppose, yeah, it has definitely informed my relationship with land, nature, place. Um, but equally, because of my relationship to land, nature and place, that journey has been what it is, if that, if that makes sense. Um, so, yeah, it's like a, a, a bit of an Ouroboros situation where like, you know, the serpent chasing its tail. Um, yeah, I think that I think that my growing practice like really kind of came up of one in a way I wanted to understand better how I could live on the earth in a way that was harmonious um, to a degree. And so that is, I feel like what I take away from my growing practice is like learning about how to feel connected to place and um, working, I suppose a popular word at the moment is reciprocity. Yeah. Working in a way that's rooted in that. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for that. Um, when when I heard you speak now about kind of the moment you decided why you wanted to start, you know, or continue your growing practice, it felt as if it was like a firm decision. Um, and I've heard you speak in other interviews about um, your life as an international model and then you leaving that. <laughs> You leaving that and uh, your growing practice emerged. So I wonder if that was like the turning point for you or 
uh, were there earlier influences in your life um, mm. whereby you um, you were always interested in growing and gardening? Well, that was definitely um, a turning point for me. It was definitely like a, yeah, there was a definite clear pivot. <laughs> um, I was very much like embroiled in an industry that was like the stark opposite. <laughs> um, you know, a lot, you know, to begin with in my career in fashion, I was doing a lot of like more, um, what do you call it, like high end kind of fashion, like less fast fashion. But as my career kind of went on, it was more and more fast fashion and as you can imagine, it's just like pure extraction, um, right from like the process of producing the fiber to the people who are making the clothes, to the people who are producing the imagery that are selling you the clothes. So like, you know, the whole thing is pretty like intense. Um, so yeah, I was really looking for something that was the opposite of all that, because I suppose by being in that world, I just like had such like a clear, experience of like the impact it has it's not like this kind of abstract concept in my head that you know maybe I watch a documentary about or read a paper on or something it's like I was in it and I was seeing how not only it affected like people around me but also myself like I was living by that kind of extractive mindset of like you just keep going and this kind of scarcity thing that comes along with it um in the fashion industry particularly in in modeling um and yeah, and 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 as I was sort of learning more about how I could find better wellness in my body and my like myself, um, sort of understanding health through the lens of food was really something that drew me in. And it didn't take long before I then was like curious about, oh, where's this food come from? And then that's when I was like, oh, I could grow some. And then it kind of escalated from there. Um, and in tandem with that, I was also understanding the impact that um, food has in relation to the climate crisis and not just like the negative impact, but the huge potential that lies in food and how we feed ourselves to actually have like a really powerful mitigation, you know, against some of the adverse effects of climate crisis, but also to, you know, basically uh, try to slow it down. <laughs> um, so... So that was really exciting for me. But I suppose before like all that happened and I had the big light bulb moment, I was already like interested in growing, I suppose. Like my mum always had houseplants and um, we moved a lot when I was a kid and there wasn't like money or anything. And so whenever we moved, mum would make a garden out of like nothing <laughs> and, you know, feed us like really good homegrown salad. And like that was a really powerful part of my childhood and seeing you know my mum struggled with mental health and seeing the impact of growing that garden had on her that was also super formative so I suppose it always been around me um and then in my time of like searching it just came back up and was like <laughs> this is a place to to root in I suppose pardon the pun <laughs> wow thank you for sharing that and sharing a bit about your, your mother's journey and, and her relationship with, with growing. Um, and I feel this is one of the ways in which it's important to talk about, at least within the context in which you and I exist in, in, in Europe, to really talk about um, nature through the, the lens and the prism of relationship, um, as opposed to, I don't know, like object or something inanimate. Um, because once you see it through that lens, I feel that it's easier for people to become more 
conscious of the ways in which nature has been a place of, of healing, a place of awe, a place of inspiration. And um, some someone who has accompanied them throughout life in, mm. in different ways and different manifestations. So yeah, thank you for sharing that and uh, yeah, and, and kind of giving us an insight as to how that experience was for you and, and how that led you to see growing both as an opportunity to, yeah, to remedy some of the, um, the harms and the changes that we're seeing on, on our planet. Um, and I know like as two people who, you know, deeply care about earth, um, um, I hope that your experiences um, in the fast fashion industry is somewhere that can still be a place of learning and not somewhere that you think of like as, oh, that wasn't me. This is who I am. Um, <laughs> because I believe everything that we go through, everything that we experience, every path that we take has something to, to teach us and to, to show us and give us more clarity. Um, mm. So speaking of which, <laughs> what what experiences do you take away from that time in your life mm-hmm. in the modeling industry, which have informed your either your practice as a grower um, or just the way you think about life and and you know the person that you are becoming? Mm. I think as more distance kind of falls between myself and that time um it's easier for me to look back and see the lessons um I definitely experienced I suppose like an element of shame in like in the first few years even sometimes now to be honest that I was like involved (laughs) like deeply embroiled in that world and you know accepting money from it and I don't have that so much now. I mean, every now and then I suppose it does pop up, but no, I definitely feel that I have like learned huge amount. I mean, look, I have like the deepest friends from that time as well. Like it wasn't all bad. There was like also, it was incredible witnessing like creativity and, you know, there's also a part of me that feels like I witnessed an incredibly, not efficient in terms of like sustainability, but efficient in terms of like, that industry gets done. <laughs> like they're getting people buying their clothes that like it, it is, it is merciless. And I think that there's something actually quite um, interesting about working within that industry because you learn kind of like how, to, how, how to get things done, I guess. <laughs> um, not, not all of the, not, not all of the methodologies <laughs> would I um, prescribe to, but like in a nutshell, I think it was a really good kind of like, I guess, training in business to a degree. Um, and a lot of what like I do on social media now is basically rooted in what I learned when I was working in fashion, which was about like, if you have a story that you want, if you have a, a thing, a concept, a story, a narrative or a product you want to sell, like it's about the way that you draw the the viewer of that thing. How, how am I saying this clearly? Like I think during, while I was working in fashion, I learned clearly about how to market a story to a person. Um, unfortunately, the industry I was working in, the thing that was being marketing marketed was not a good thing, but I've been able to kind of flip that on its head. And now the story that I tell, I feel is really powerful. I mean, I know it had an incredible impact on me in a positive way. And so I'm kind of able to use that experience working in 
selling a concept to people to sell something that I think is really beautiful. Um, <laughs> it's a lot easier to do because like the proofs in the pudding, like people feel good when they engage with this stuff. Um, and it is just so multifaceted, you know, like it's the benefit isn't just for the individual, it's for the community, it's for the earth, it's the ecosystem, you know, all of us as a whole. Um, so yeah, you were asking what some of the lessons that I learned. So I think there was that. And then also probably learning about the importance of rest, um, like fallow time. I know that at the beginning I was obsessed with, I mean, still am to a degree, but less obsessed with like compost and like winter and like some of the kind of like pagan type of teachings around like death and decay um, and I think that was in like direct response to being in an industry that's obsessed with like growth <laughs> and newness and youngness and freshness. Um, and I really started to, I suppose, you know, in contrast to that, understand the value in um, basically senescence. Um, and that's something that you learn so like keenly in, in a growing space. Like you can't have that spring, summer abundance um and youth and beauty without the death and decay that happens in autumn and winter um so that's definitely something that I learned from that time as well like a very acute understanding of like circularity because I'd seen the opposite of that in action if that makes sense That, that resonates with me a lot in, in terms of um, spirituality and faith, um, because there has to be cycles of, of death in order for uh, rebirth to happen. Um, and it can be so tempting to want perpetual, mm-hmm. perpetual summer, perpetual spring, perpetual fruits, but you need, uh, you need winter, you need autumn, you need those seasons also. Um, in order to become um, whole as a person, in order mm. to to be able to appreciate the the abundance, true abundance of not just spring and summer, but the abundance that can also emerge from winter, because there's a mm. lot of it. Um, yes, and um, yeah. So thank you for you know embracing the lessons that you've learned in that that part of your journey. Um, as you were speaking just now about. Um, how your experience in the fashion industry kind of gave you the the insight and tools on how to like market the story. Um, I was so excited because, you know, I follow you on social media and I'm like, you know, when I go to like my, you know, my shared garden, I have no clue what to do. (laughs) And then I go into your social media, I'm like, oh my gosh, this is possible. Let me get back out. Let me get back out. I can do this. (laughs) Because <laughs> um, your your work, the way you talk about um, um, you know gardening and growing, the way you the things that you share really do inspire kind of joy and and pleasure and excitement about this whole process and this whole experience and practice. Um, and you know, having read some of your work and listened to some of the interviews, I know that your approach is 
as much as, you know, you, you learned some game from the fashion industry, it's also, <laughs> it's also rooted in like, um, very deep kind of principles and approaches to, to, um, to growing and, and gardening. So, um, could you share a bit more about some of the principles that you, you take, um, when you're thinking about how to, how to grow nature, how to grow with nature, how to grow food? Mm. Yeah, so I suppose the like the skills that I learned in fashion are more applicable to like the business side of how I run what I do. <laughs> I don't think I learned a single thing in fashion about like how to actually engage with land, how to grow food, any of that. I suppose maybe I like got a very vague understanding of like fiber, like where that comes from. But aside from that, no. So um, my my you asking my growing practice, yeah. So my growing practice, I, I I call it ecological. There's like so many words that you can use to describe the sort of thing I do. Some people might call it permaculture. Some people just call it no dig. Um, there, there's you know there's so many different ways of labeling it. But I like to say ecological because I feel like it basically says like if it's if it's good for the ecosystem, if it's viewing the garden through the lens of relationality, then like it's welcome. And that there's so, you know, there's so much nuance to do with like where we are in the world, our climate, our soil type, et cetera, et cetera, that like there's not like really a one size fits all way of growing. Um, and the important thing is about is the relationship, is the ability to kind of like um, observe a landscape and respond accordingly rather than be like, oh, well, you know, X person on the other side of the world said that I should never dig, so I never will. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like there's so many different contexts and 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 ways things can or can't be useful. So I don't prescribe to one particular thing only, but my growing practice basically centers um uh soil care. So for me, that's like cultivating a soil that's rich in organic matter, really high in different various diverse life forms, because ultimately that supports healthy plants, makes my job a lot easier as a grower. The plants are healthy and bounce back from pest disease issues and are very far more tolerant to adverse weather conditions. Um, and it also makes the plants that I'm growing for food um, far more nutrient dense. Then I also focus on uh, growing with seed that is sourced ethically because like, I guess this is more of like a symbolic gesture because it doesn't just apply to seed. It applies to like all the resources that come into the growing space. It's like, okay, so my garden is going to be ethical, but I don't want to be like jeopardizing some other environment far away from me in order for my garden to be nice. So it's like, okay, so the seed, you know, who's growing that seed? Where does it come from? Is it organic? Blah, 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 blah. All those questions related to any resource that comes into the garden. So yeah, that's that's in relation to seed, but also anything that flows into the space. Um, harvesting water, because water literally is life. Um, there's so much kind of like energy that goes into processing and cleaning our water in the UK. Um, the plants don't need, and they actually need that cleaned water. They actually prefer rainwater. So taking pressure off of our municipal water systems is a really good thing and also helps to reduce like kind of... Um, runoff of water potentially into drainage systems, which again are under high pressure, particularly with like more intense weather events. Um, then I also like to ensure that the garden space is not just like beneficial for me, but is also helping other people. So like whether that is the fact that I use it as like a kind of demonstration space for my social media content, or whether that's doing simple stuff like giving away seed or taking it to seed swaps or sharing produce. Um, yeah, so ensuring the growing space is impacting lives outside of my own. 
Um, and is that all? I think that's the. I think those are the key principles. I think I've run through them: water, soil, um, seed, community, water, soil, seed, community. Yeah, that's it. Biodiversity. That's the final one. Ensuring that the growing space is like a space that's not only good for me, but also good for the creatures that like share this locality with me. So, whether that's ensuring I grow like you know a, a variety of native wildflowers or um, growing organically so that it's actually a welcoming space. It's not just going to kill them on arrival, um, that sort of thing. Wow. Thank you so much. Water, soil, seed, community, and biodiversity. That is, uh, that is incredible. Thank you so much. <laughs> That's okay. Um, <laughs> I, I feel like a part of that, I mean, if I was to add one, I think it would be uh, consciousness. Mm. Um, I know, I, I, I don't know actually because I, I'm not like a grower, um, but it is a completely different way of being and living in this world when you are growing ecologically. Um, mm. Has that, is the, has that been a gradual shift for you or have you always kind of had uh a consciousness that's mindful of your place in in this world on earth in relation to to nature um because it's also to do with things like time mm. like you have a completely different concept of time when you're mm. learning how to grow does that make sense like it I makes mean, total <laughs> sense I love this because you're asking me like you know, normally I don't get asked these questions, but ultimately, like my growing practice, I'm going to just be bold and say it's like deeply rooted in a spiritual practice. I grew up in a family. I was raised like kind of Christian, kind of not. My dad is like a super spiritual man and he basically dips his toe into like every kind of esoteric religious spiritual practice there is in the world. And he kind of like, well, not every single one, obviously, but he tries. <laughs> And he shared, has shared, continues to share um, so much of that with us growing up. Um, my mum has a really, she's also a very, very open woman. And so, yeah, my like, my growing experience is like, uh, it does, I don't really necessarily have the words for it. It's like communing with a divinity and like a truth beyond like all of it, I suppose. And that's part of what, drew me it felt like a kind of a growing space a living landscape has the ability to like inspire awe and a sense of belonging and place while also making you feel so small and humbled and connected to everything and that is something incredibly spiritual and magical and I do think that you know there's a sorrow in me that so many of us live now in a time in the world when we don't necessarily have like a spiritual practice, whatever that might look for ourselves. And I think that like, I know for me in periods of my life, when I haven't been like tethered to a sense of awe, a sense of guidance, like I haven't felt great. <laughs> and I think that, I think that there's like a lot of sustenance and, um, guidance to be had from having a spiritual relationship to a piece of land um and I think that that's something very valuable for us in this time um and I think that I, I'm not sure that a relationship I'm not sh I, I kind of have this feeling that all relationships with land place growing whatever 
foraging, any kind of relationship with a living landscape that is rooted in relationality kind of is spirituality. Even if you don't want to put the label on it, even if you're like, no, I'm not a spiritual person, whatever, then that's fine. But for me, it looks pretty spiritual. <laughs> like to feel connected in that way to something bigger than oneself. Like to me, that is kind of like one of the key ingredients to spirituality. So yeah, like I totally agree. One of the one of the things that could go on that list for sure would be what was the word you used? Con- consciousness. Yeah, because a hundred percent. That is like the fundamental piece there, because if you are layering all those other concepts on top of a lack of conscience, consciousness or a lack of, lack of understanding of relationality, then they just are like kind of like void of substance and meaning. You don't, they're not, they won't. I think there's a risk in ecological growing or growing, home growing in general at the moment of the power in it being co-opted and turned into an aesthetic which is something I see so often at the moment, particularly on social media. It's like the kind of like um, dig for victory vibe of like, I'm doing organic growing or whatever, but it doesn't necessarily have the bit that's really radical, which is that shift in actual consciousness and the shift in how we relate to one another, ourselves and the earth around us. So yes, I think you're very right. That is a key ingredient. It's 100% the like bedrock of how I interact with, the, with, with, with landscapes. And it's what I really hope and you know pray that that people end up taking away with them when they do engage in 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 growing spaces or non-growing spaces wild spaces whatever like living landscapes that's it for me you know if if people can have that experience then that's a good good thing (laughs) and it is it is amazing it is amazing I have never come across anyone who hasn't spent time like in in a landscape in a in a seascape and not come away with some sense of awe or like mm. beauty or like wow you know fascination mm. um and i feel you know when when people are rightfully um kind of thinking you know what can i do in the face mm. of all that is happening in the world especially when it comes to to nature and climate there can be um an instinctiveness to want to start doing stuff. And there's so many things you can do, but I feel the the real shift, at least for the human species is with, within the context of being. Um, mm-hmm. The work to be done is about being and not necessarily about doing. Um, mm. Otherwise you have an endless list of things you can do and it just becomes overwhelming mm. um, if, you, if you haven't really taken time to, yeah, to to explore what are the things that uh, are to be learned or unlearned in the way mm. you're, you're thinking, you're feeling, you're experiencing um, um, nature. And that isn't to say that you shouldn't do anything. That's not what I'm saying. Let me clarify that. <laughs> but what I'm no, saying... It's like the foundation, right? Yeah, yeah, I fully agree. Yeah, Because it's that thing of like, you know, when, when the so-called solutions come from the same place as the problems, then they're just temporary solutions and they're going to bring with them a whole host of problems I, I I do often you know one of the reasons that I like kind of share the stuff I share whether that's speaking writing or social media is because I really feel strongly that like there isn't a silver bullet to any of the issues we're facing as humanity today like there just isn't there's kind of there's so many ways in which the climate crisis 
well, so many ways in which the way we live is leading to climate crisis that you can't be like, okay, we just need to like stop oil. Okay, we just need to fix our food food system or just fast fashion or whatever it is. Like for me, like I would be so excited to see a movement which is focusing on like a more holistic shift in perspective that can then be the foundation for the fine details. So, you know, what if all the people in all these executive decision um, decision-making spaces within all these different industries had the same, they were rooted into the same worldview. And what if that worldview wasn't extractive scarcity mindset capitalism that we're existing in now? What if it was something more about relationality, et cetera? So I feel like for me, the detail is important, but if the story can change about how we relate to one another in the world, the detail will kind of come. That's my feeling around it. But I'm not an anthropologist or a scholar or anything like that. But, you know, <laughs> that's my contribution to the discussion, I suppose. <laughs> um, no, I hear you. And it, it resonates, for me, it resonates with um, why we started this podcast, right? Mm. And also resonates with my own personal journey in, in this work and thinking about um, how to live differently in a way that is uh, harmonious and caring and loving towards myself, towards other people and fundamentally towards, um, all life on earth. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah. Would you share a little bit about your story? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I definitely can. <laughs> now you're putting me in the hot seat. <laughs> the table's turned. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, look, I grew up in inner city London. Before that, I grew up in inner city Nairobi in Kenya. Um, and I didn't have an awareness of nature. Like, obviously, there's nature around me, but nature was more of like uh, an object or part of the physical surroundings around mm. me, more so than like living beings who are like breathing and interacting with myself and other people. Um, and I, I remember I, I started working for a nature conservation organization like five years ago. And I remember like, I was really embarrassed because everybody knew like all the names of different types of plants. And I literally, (laughs) my goodness, I knew nothing. (laughs) I absolutely knew nothing. And I was just, I was really it was like the, it was like the more shame, like, mm. how can you not know, you know, but they never made me feel that way. They never made me feel that way, but it was just more like these group of people have access to language and to a part of reality that I know nothing about yet has mm. surrounded me my entire life. Um, and I think it was two experiences changed that for me. I think firstly, um, I I was recovering from um, severe depression and I was running a lot in, um, in public parks. Um, And so that was like, I just became more aware of like nature and different trees and different landscapes and terrains. And that was like, so cool. (laughs) And then, um, and then my transition to a plant-based diet. Um, So I became vegan about seven years ago. And I think after the first month, I was like, I need to not just eat chickpeas and rice because this is not sustainable. <laughs> so I 
had to learn about different like pulses and like vegetables and fruits and how they're grown and the different types of soils and why this, this type of seed is more acidy than the other type of seed. So it was just all these things. I just suddenly my world just opened up and mm. I actually realized there is a name for this experience and it's called um, plant awareness disparity. And it's used to um, describe a lack of knowledge or like attentiveness to plants around us. Um, the majority of its studies have been done mainly in like urban spaces or urbanized spaces. So like there is a tendency to assume that people who live in urbanized spaces have higher levels of plant awareness disparity because they are not, even if they're surrounded by, you know, trees or like, you know, flowers and bushes, they're not necessarily aware of it or attentive to it in the same way that someone who grows, for example, would be attentive to different types of plants, different types of vegetation or species that exist in that space. Um, so that's that. I think that partly informs why I wasn't as conscious of the fact that like, it wasn't just that there's plants around me or like different types of plants, but like they're living, they're actually living and and living not in like, oh, because they're growing, they're alive. <laughs> and if they're not growing, they're not alive. It's like, no, actually they live <laughs> all the time and they have their own life and they communicate with each other. And it was just like, wow. And, and I think for me, this is one of the reasons why relationality is so important when we're talking about nature is because when we um, start to appreciate and accept the reality that like all of nature is alive and like living and doing its own thing with or without us being attentive to it, it kind of broadens our perspective on like just how wonderful and like cosmic and big this planet is. Um, and you know, why, you know, the tiniest seed, you know, on the ground to like the biggest tree or the biggest mammal, you know, they matter just as much because they're part of this like web of life that is flowing with us and, you know, you know, in other ways. Um, and it's another reason why I really love your, your content on social media because you're kind of showing us like how to, you know, different ways, not just different ways of growing, but I feel like you really are making people aware of like that they're different types of plants. They're different. There's, it's like, there's a variety and there's diversity and it's like, it's really exciting. And it also exists wherever you are. And I feel that is more important even now because we're moving towards a world that is becoming more urbanized and that has um, lower rates of like, you know, um, green spaces or lower rates of like nature existing. And we do need to um, have like visible reminders all the time that like plants exist and that they are like alive and they are diverse and that they, yeah, they, they're very unique and different in the way that they grow and the way that they exist in, in, in and around us, if that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, no, that does make total sense. I'd add to that actually that like, 
that experience, I mean, yeah, statistically, I'm sure there is like huge disparity in, in the ability for maybe someone who grew up in an urban space to be able to like tap into that world. But would also like kind of add the layer that weirdly there's like this kind of concept of the countryside or r- rural places as being like in England anyway, this kind of like idyll that's like, you know, people are so connected to all these green spaces and whatnot. But, you know, in truth, I think it's like 92% of the UK isn't accessible to us to be in and on. And majority of the green spaces, even in rural places, are are owned. You can't get in them. And if you do get in, it's hard to get out. Um, And they're full of monoculture crops, which are often sprayed. So you probably wouldn't want to go in there anyway. So there's this weird kind of like... um, uh, contrast between the image that we have of the British countryside, which is this like beautiful green landscape full of life, when in truth, like there is huge biodiversity in urban spaces and in places where humans live because there there is safety from the kind of more aggressive landscape that modern industrial agriculture has kind of created. So it's an in, there's an there's a really interesting like kind of again relationship there, I suppose. Um, where there's almost like a, a false sense of life <laughs> in the countryside. Um, and I remember moving to London from Wiltshire, where I spent my like teen years, and being like, oh my God, you can just like go anywhere you want. <laughs> like in London, you know, there's like streets everywhere, you just like go around the place. Whereas like in Wiltshire, like you'd get on a footpath, you'd walk somewhere, the footpath would end, there'd be like fences everywhere, you have to turn around and walk back again. <laughs> like you can't go anywhere. So, um, or unless you're walking on the road and that's dangerous. So yeah, there's there's an interesting, interesting thing there. There's actually a great book called um the urban, no, oh, hang on, I've got it here. Have I got it here? No, I haven't got it here. I think it's called Urban Jungle, and I can't remember the name of the author, but it basically explores this, like the sheer quantity of biodiversity and wildness in urban places, um, if it's allowed to have space to thrive. Thank you for sharing that and like bringing to, to light like the nuance in terms of like our perceptions of like, rural, urban, and like biodiversity. Um, Mm. And I I remember also like sometimes explaining to people like, you know, whenever you, you know, you might go to a particular place in the UK and you see like rolling hills and like, you know, idyllic landscapes and you're thinking, wow, there's so much nature. Mm. And it's like really hard to explain to them. Like that's actually not Mm-hmm. <laughs> there's, there's actually no biodiversity there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like the complete opposite, and they're like, yeah. "What?" <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, I and mean, I guess that's a part of that thing about the co-opting of that. Like, you know, so often I see, so often I see imagery um, in like the kind of world of like slow living or food growing or foraging that's like oh you know having this beautiful nature connection moment in the rural countryside and yes if you're having that experience internally then 10 out of 10 that's amazing but there's also the danger of it not getting deep enough and for us not realizing that that like wheat field that we're frolicking through is like covered in potentially glyphosate and like you know (laughs) like really really toxic um and a bit of a desert, you know. So <laughs> it's interesting. It's, it's like an a interesting... green desert. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But h- how do we how do we get to a space where, like, we can 
or people, not we, people can access this type of knowledge and information, right? Mm. Um, mm. Because I don't think, I think especially within, like when it comes to really tech, not technical, but important skills, life skills, like growing. Um, I don't, and I'm happy to be corrected on this, but I don't feel that the knowledge is as available or accessible to an everyday person who is living life to be able to kind of take on board and like apply. But I'm, I'm open to be challenged on this, but I, I feel it's. It's interesting. I think that like this information isn't necessarily part of our, like, it's not necessarily part of the information that we're just like sort of subconsciously fed all the time, every day. Like, you know, those memes that you see of like, can you name these plant leaves? Can you name these logos? And you can name all the logos and not a single leaf. Or like, yeah, I guess there isn't that kind of like subconscious absorption of this kind of information going on in our culture. But I would I would say that like, you know, with the internet, there's like so much free information out there. Um, and some of it from like incredibly experienced, knowledge, um, people who've been working, you know, in their in their practice with the land for a very long time, and maybe people that we wouldn't normally have access to. Um, so I do I do think that, you know, YouTube is full of incredible um people doing incredible things. If you just like kind of get your search terms right. <laughs> um, all sorts comes up. Um, and I, and I, and I also think that most, a lot, a lot of us, particularly people who listen to this podcast will probably have access to community gardens and there's so much information sharing that. I suppose there does have to be like a bit of a proactiveness about it. Cause like you said, it doesn't, it's not just like on billboards. <laughs> Although can you imagine if it was, um, and there are so many incredible books as well. Um, yeah, I don't think it's necessarily immediately accessible. And I suppose the other layer to that is that, you know, there's it's one thing if you've got the time to sit there and, you know, absorb all this information through YouTube or reading books or whatever, um, going on courses. Um, but a lot of people, we don't necessarily have the time. So I think that maybe in those instances, I really feel that community growing is like a really amazing thing to do, particularly if you can find a garden where you can exchange your time for food, because then you're getting, you know, well-grown produce and through the process of growing that produce, you're also learning and supported by other people who maybe, you know, um, have a greater understanding of what's going on, the process that's happening. And and you're also getting like a nice well-being moment. So <laughs> um, I'd really encourage engaging in community growing. And if you don't have the time or, or finance resources, then try and find one that you get something in return so that your, your time given to the learning experience is being... Um, reimbursed if that makes sense mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. okay yeah that's brilliant um I really like the concept and idea of community growing um mm. and I feel it's 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 something that um it's a space where people can learn together as well as well as taking part in a practice of you know collectively cultivating uh something um yeah and I mean just connected to that like season two for us is all about reimagining the environmental movement um, because I feel sometimes the images that people have of like being an environmentalist is, uh, can be quite, mm, can be rooted in like very kind of militant imagery, like, you Mm. know, we have to fight for our planet and uh, there's a lot of like resistance and resistance language resist. And in, in part, I think sometimes that is needed 
but I feel that um, it's important for us to also make space to nurture an environmental movement that's centered on joy, on care, on pleasure, because I feel when you are living in right relationship with earth, those things are like a very natural manifestation of that. Um, But yeah, I mean, I'd love to hear your thoughts on what, how you feel gardening and growing helps us, can help us reimagine an environmental movement that is, that is centered um, on, on those things. Yeah. Well, I suppose like, I suppose for me, I think that growing alongside with the relationship element, which we've touched on so much, also teaches us so much about care and nurturing. Um, and, and, you know, that's like, that's, that's in quite a stark contrast to the resistance kind of, um, uh, the resistance mentality, I suppose, that, that, that also exists in the climate movement. I think you're absolutely right. I think that both are hugely important. Um, but I do think that growing teaches us so much about, yeah, care, <laughs> exchange, abundance. I think that, I think for me, the one of the most exciting things about gardening is that it kind of like offers like a kind of blueprint slash learning experience for what a world that is truly sustainable can look like. Like a garden teaches us abundance like nothing else. So, you know, it's an antidote to that whole scarcity thing. You plant one seed, it becomes this gigantic squash plant that has like hundreds of more seeds for next year. Um, if you kind of like fulfill your element of care that's involved in the contract of gardening, then you get like so much in return. So there's that, the abundance, the care. Um, there's also like the the understanding of the importance of circularity. There's the understanding of the importance of complexity and diversity. Um, there's the understanding of like communities because you know when we start to see the garden and run grow a garden ecologically like community is like everything in a growing space whether that's like looking at the community that a plant surrounds itself in terms of microbes and fungi which support that plant because the plant can't move support that plant to you know basically weather whatever the world throws at it as it stays rooted in that one spot so there's like, or whether that is the way that plants, you know, communicate underground or, um, or the way that certain plants maybe support other plants and they're growing. Like there's so much kind of complexity community in that. And again, that is something that we could very well apply to our climate movements or just any community living way of life in general. So I think that there's so much to be learned from growing that can be applied outside of growing. And I think that's the moment when growing becomes like truly quite radical is when the lessons from how a garden grows can be brought out into our wider life and inform the way that we live. more questions for you yeah um one is to do with black womanhood yeah because I was inspired because I read an interview where you spoke a bit about that and how um 
sometimes there's a, no, maybe this is a projection, but I don't think I projected, but you can clarify. <laughs> but um, there was this kind of uh, notion of like being presented to be like a radical voice or like a different voice. And that kind of being connected to your identity, you know, as a mixed race black woman. And um, I think I'm at the point in my journey. <laughs> um, I, I'm, I'm very much divesting from um, struggle and pain as being the struggle, pain, and like, being political as like the identity of black womanhood. Mm. And um, it's actually through my own personal journey and relationship with nature that I'm, I have actually learned how to center things like pleasure, mm. like rest, mm. like care, like softness, mm. like receiving um, it, it, it like as part or, or as more central to my identity and the way I see um, other Black women in, in my life. Um, so, yeah, I just, I'm just curious as to how that, that yeah. part of your identity shows up in your work or how people, you know, present you and maybe, yeah, how you've navigated that. Like, yeah. Especially because well, gardening in the UK <laughs> and growing, people don't think of, you know, <laughs> I mean, now they do because, mm -hmm. you know, you're so well known. But initially, I think even when I've gone to like gardening events in London um, mm -hmm. that are not that are not um, more grassroots. Grassroots, grassroots. Yeah. 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 Um, the demographic <laughs> respectfully. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It shifts. Um, well, so. Uh, that's, yeah. Broad question. I. I. I feel often resentful. I have felt often resentful that I couldn't just be like <laughs> left in peace to like talk about ecological growing without being the black woman that's talking about ecological growing. I don't know. I mean, it's so complex because at the same time as that, I absolutely adore that like I might be the black woman that like some little black girl is looking at and is like, oh, like I could put my hands in the soil as well. And like I so belong here and I have every right to like explore out of an urban situation into rural and engage with whatever the hell kind of like caring landscape activity I want to. So it's complicated because like on a personal level, I'm like, oh, <laughs> and then like on a like on a broader level, I'm like so fed by that. It's just like so incredible. And and I know that like <clears throat> when I was a little girl, I saw a picture of Alec Weck in a magazine and that was like the first time I saw blackface like in the media, really, that like struck me. And I cut the picture out and put it up on my wall and then I became a model, you know. So I don't know. I don't know. I feel like there is power in seeing ourselves represented in places but yeah at the same time I suppose I suppose I really hope that it runs deeper than just seeing just visibility because I feel like the real like the real powerful work is when you know and I guess I'm speaking to diaspora here because I'm a mixed race woman living in England um to the experience of being part of a diaspora um is that for me personally, and I, you know, I hear this kind of mirrored to me by so many other people is that there can sometimes be a sense of like, do I belong? And like, how do I find a sense of place 
in this landscape that maybe I don't necessarily feel so connected to for whatever reason. <clears throat> and I think that growing um, really offers like so much peace from that, in that. Um, yeah, so I, I, I really hope that aside from like the visibility piece that, that, that then it encourages people to actually engage and that, that then it maybe, yeah, can offer some peace and a sense of belonging and welcoming, you know, like all, we all deserve to engage with land and it doesn't really matter where it is. <laughs> and does that answer your question? Yeah, for sure. And I think it's, uh, it's your truth. So it definitely answers my question. <laughs> I suppose there's one other layer to that, which is that for me, um, ecological gardening has also offered a lens to connect with the cosmology of my ancestors on my Igbo side. Um, and I don't think that I would necessarily like, as I learn, and I'm definitely just still learning, I don't think I would quite grasp the truths that are being shared from that cosmology, the way that I do now being someone who's rooted in like a practice of growing because that cosmology came out of a culture and a community that was deeply relate in relationship with land. Cause it was, you know, pretty much subsistence. Um, so I think that there's like a layer of, of meaning that I manage and that I'm able to like connect to. I, I think that's how it feels anyway, um, through this experience. And, and I really value that. That like means so much to me, like that quote from the beginning of like the people belong to the earth. There's like so many ways of reading that, but as somebody who like grows food, it like means everything because like, the earth feeds us, clothes us, waters us, you know, gives us our bodies and we'll take them back in the end. And, you know, that's the kind of reality that you maybe don't grasp as deeply when you don't have the experience of turning a compost heap. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. That I agree with. That I agree with. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining us in today's conversation. We'd love to connect with you and hear your thoughts. We are on Instagram, TikTok, and LinkedIn at Black Earth Podcast. Don't forget to share this podcast with your friends, your family, your network, your communities. And you can also subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Black Earth is a proudly independent podcast and we are on a mission to reconnect and heal humanity's relationship with nature. If you'd like to support us, we are on Patreon at Black Earth Podcast. Thank you and see you in the next episode.